um, I, I was walking, walking in the room here earlier, and all of a sudden, uh, out of the corner of my eye, I spotted someone, and I, I just want to tell you, um, I just want to tell you this story. Uh, so when I was in college, um, I know many of you guys are aware, you've heard my story, we had this massive campus revival, and I got the privilege of playing football with a lot of uh, awesome dudes. And uh, there was one guy in particular that um, I, I certainly had a relationship with, and um, but to say he was living far from the Lord would be an understatement, and uh, was doing his own thing, going his own way, even amidst the revival, um, I think uh, even he would admit was um, completely um, neglected to the gospel at all. And, and so uh, a few weeks ago, my mom was sharing her testimony at her church, and I walked in, and I hadn't seen this guy for 15 years, but I walked in the room, and I was like, Dennis? And, I, you know, I, at first I'm like, oh, my, you know, I was like, what are you doing here? And he's like, bro, I, I got baptized two weeks ago. And, and so all of a sudden, like, we just start just sharing in the glory of the Lord together as we get to watch what God's doing. And so I share with him what God's doing here. And, uh, and I'm, I'm just so thankful. I walked in the room earlier, and, and now my, my new brother in Christ, Dennis, is here tonight. So, Dennis, would you mind just standing up so we can, what an amazing story. Pretty awesome. What's, what's crazy in the sovereignty of God is like of all of the days, I, I've never been to my mom's church before, and I walk in two weeks after this, this dude comes to Christ. Like what a, what a crazy, crazy thing. So glad you're here tonight, brother. Listen, I, at some point in all of your uh, lives and my life included, there is a one moment, one very, very precise moment. We've all had it. Um, there's zero exceptions in the room. We come to this moment where all of a sudden we ask ourselves uh, this a question. What if I were rich? Right. And, um, and, and then, then you, start, um, you start like funneling through all the ideas, right? Uh, some of you have it while you're, you've had this moment while you're driving. Uh, others of uh, you while you're laying in bed at night. Others of you, uh, you, you answer this question, well, I don't think about this actually because I am rich, right? And so... And then, and then, for me anyway, you like cycle through all of these, like all these emotions, right? Because you start thinking, okay, I know God knows my thoughts, and so if I just start thinking, God, I am going. I'm, I mean, I'm going to tithe on it. I promise, Lord. Like, if you, if we can, if this can be the time where I win the lottery, like, Lord, I am going to give most of it back. I promise, you know. And you, you start playing these games, right? Like negotiating. Like, I know God sees my thoughts, so. So, you know, you, you, you go into the gas station and you're, like, talking with God all the way in. Like, Lord, I know you, I, I'm just feeling it. I know this is when you want to extend, you know, your, your mercy to me, right? Th- just these moments, like, what, what am I going to buy? Where am I going to live? Where, where am I going to go? When you start thinking about what if I were rich, our mind starts to wonder. Now, for the most of us, at least in the material sense, uh, this isn't true of us. And so we're left wondering but I want to make a contention tonight that what if, what if all of us in Christ held riches that we have barely even started to begin to understand the depth of? What if there were riches that were afforded us in Christ that all of a sudden tonight God would take the scales off and we could just bathe in? Uh, what if tonight we weren't left wondering, but we left assured. You guys understand what I'm saying? And, and this is poignant because we're starting uh, last week and continuing tonight a brand new journey. Next slide. Uh, in the, the awesome letter to the church in Ephesus called Ephesians. And if you weren't here last week, the, the whole summary of this whole letter is that the gospel disrupts everything. As it has for Dennis's life, as I've heard what's already happened, the, the gospel disrupts uh, his wife is yet to come to Christ, and so he's praying, God, please disrupt her life as well. It disrupts. It disrupted in, in Paul's life. It disrupted in his testimony. It disrupted when Paul came to Ephesus in Acts 19. And when Paul comes to Ephesus, uh, which, next slide, here, here it is on the map. It's, as I showed you last week, in this red square. The green square is Jerusalem, just so you can get some frame of reference. It's in an area of the ancient world called uh, Asia Minor. When he shows up here, okay, next slide, uh, the, the primary dominant worship of the culture is worshiping this goddess, Diana, uh, many of which call Artemis. 
Uh, she was a goddess that uh, dominated the trade of the land. Everyone in Ephesus, uh, from a trade standpoint, or at least most, were making uh, uh, the silversmiths making statues of Artemis. Uh, so much so that the seventh wonder, one of the seven wonders of the world, next slide, a rendition here of her temple. So this was Ephesus. Uh, he comes in, he begins to preach the gospel in the synagogues for three months. Uh, he then, uh, slightly discouraged from the disgruntlement that's created, he then leaves and heads to essentially the equivalent of a lecture hall. And there he spends the next two plus years, does Paul, preaching, persuading, and sharing the truth about who God is. And his message is man-made gods are no gods at all. Like all these things that you're making, all these things that you're creating, the, the works of your hands are not God at all. And he started telling them about the one true almighty God. And so that's Ephesus. Uh, we only got through two verses last week, so we'll uh, see how many we get through tonight. Open your Bibles to Ephesus, or to Ephesians rather, uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 3. Um, this is the beginning of the longest run-on sentence seemingly anywhere. Verse 3 to verse 14 in the Greek is 202 words in a sentence, okay? This was much like my literary writings, right? Like, I like dot, dot, dots, anyone else? Like, I hate periods and exclamation points. I like to just, uh, like, continue things on, okay? This is the sentence for Paul where I picture him, again, writing from a prison cell in Rome. That's where he's writing this. I picture him just like one truth and another truth and another truth. And I picture him just getting so excited that he's barely breathing. And so whether it was a scribe that was actually notating this as he wrote or he was writing it himself, I picture him so overwhelmed with the spirit that he's not adding commas. He's not putting periods. He's just like, let's keep laying it down. And so as we begin to study tonight, you'll see why. You ready? Strap on your seatbelt here, my friends. Verse 3, Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And my guess is, like me, you're instantly drawn, next slide, to the three times in this text that we see this word, blessed or blessing. You want to hear something interesting? Uh, the Greek word for that first word there, blessed, is where we get our word eulogy. And I know most times we associate the word eulogy with a funeral. But when you think about what a eulogy actually is, it's a summary of someone's life in the literal sense. It's a, it's a praising of who they are. It's meant to be encouraging. It's meant to, uh, in some senses, we could say exalt whoever it is that's being talked about. And so as Paul leaves his greeting, and now begins the longest run-on sentence anywhere, he starts it with, blessed be the God. In other words, everything that we're going to do in this text is going to be worshiping him. Everything that comes after is going to be why it is that we're worshiping him. And look at the second blessed. Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed who? Who has blessed us. Uh, the word is the same in the Greek with uh, some different add, uh, additives to it. So it moves from the one who's being blessed to the people that are essentially receiving the blessing. So we're going to praise God. We're going to see the reasons why we're praising, praising God. And then the last blessing here is really interesting because of the word that is before it. Every spiritual blessing. Well, the question is, what's a spiritual blessing? Um, you guys know I'm sometimes uh, sinfully probably obsessed with a man named Charles Spurgeon. And uh, Charles Spurgeon was, uh, is probably my hero. He doesn't know it. He's been dead for a long time. He's in glory, I trust. And, and he wrote a, a statement about spiritual blessing from this passage. And I, I just have to read it for you. Check this out. Thank you, Charles Spurgeon. Our thanks are due to God for all temporal blessings. They are more than we deserve. But our thanks ought to go to God in thunders of hallelujahs for spiritual blessings. A new heart is better than a new coat. To feed on Christ is better than to have the best earthly food. To be an heir of God is better than being the heir of the greatest nobleman. 
To have God for our portion is blessed, infinitely more blessed than to own broad acres of land. God hath blessed us with spiritual blessings. These are the rarest, the richest, the most enduring of all blessings. They are priceless in value. Amen? I mean, come on. I read that statement. I, had, I like started standing up as I was reading it, you know? So when we're talking about spiritual blessings here, we're talking about things that are happening, not in the temporal or material sense at all, which the prosperity gospel has made a mockery of. Oh, God blesses us, and he gives us this, and he gives us that. And Spurgeon's point is, whoa, 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 to cherish and feed on Christ is way, way better than the best earthly food there is. So here we go. Next slide. Out of this blessing, the reasons why we are to bless him. Dear heavens, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Okay, um, let, me, let me bring you in a bit here. These two verses are why people don't study Ephesians. Okay? Okay. Um, we're going to explain why they're difficult here in a second. But before we explain why these two verses are difficult, I want to encourage you on what to do when you come to a difficult passage. Again, even, even this, this entire sentence, truth after truth after truth. So we could very, very easily do something with, with this that it's not intended to do at all. So when you come to a tough passage like this, we'll explain why here in a second. What do you do with it? Number one is this. You do not look away. One of the things we believe here at Matthias is why we preach the way that we do verse by verse is we believe the scripture is all true. It's inerrant. Every word in this book is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And so if we get to this place where we're picking and choosing, looking away when it's inconvenient, gazing the eyes to easier passages when we come to difficulty, I just want to make sure you're understanding something. God has given us the whole of Scripture for a reason. And one of those reasons is not to look away when we come to hard moments. Number two, please take this on for truth. We are to believe in the Scripture, not what you want the Scripture to say. I feel like right now is this moment, Matthias' lot, where we just collectively repent. All of us, me included, everybody. Come on, there have been moments where you read the scripture and you wanted to say something because you struggle with what it's actually saying. And so you're like, ah, oh, one, two, skip a few. I'm sure in the Greek it says actually this. We won't actually look it up. We'll just, yeah, we'll just go with that. It actually means this. And in so doing, essentially writing your own Bible. I'm just asking, how many times have you changed the scripture to mean something that was easier to swallow or more convenient to live in light of when the truth was staring you in the face? I'm just asking. Could there, could there be this collective moment of repentance? Because if we just took the word at face value, at the truth for what it is, do you understand how transformative that would be? Now, when you come to difficult passage, also, thirdly, the end goal, somebody please believe this, is not being right, but a deeper awe of the Lord. The amount of time that has been spent in sin, at times, in your heart, standing on principles where ultimately your goal was being right, it started out to make sure that people understood the truth of the scripture. It started out holy. You had good intentions. But ultimately, this desire in you to be right all of a sudden came out. How many of you guys flourished in debate class in school? Okay, I know you did, Alex. Anyone else here? Right? Yeah, a couple of you, right? Listen, when I, when I was in like my early stages of debate class, there's something that happens when people start attacking you. 
You know, and we're like talking about silly things. At that time, we were talking about like building a, uh, a water bottle company, okay? Now look at the water bottle company. Like in, and I know you're thinking, I would be the rich one if I would have thought about water bottles, right? Like who would have thought of that? So I, I built this water bottle campaign, you know, and I'm, man, it's no big deal. We're going to build water bottles. And all of a sudden, the person I'm debating stands up and is like, what about that? And I mean, you would have thought he said something about my mom, you know, because I'm, we're talking about fictitious water bottles, and all of a sudden, like, I get red-faced. You guys know what, like, you guys get a little red-faced? I, like, I feel all of my, like, my blood is rushing to my head. And I'm looking at this guy who's dissing my water bottles, you know? And I want to take a baseball bat, you know, put his head on it. Anyway, like, that, that's what's going on in me, right? Water bottles. Let alone something that's life and death. Let alone something that you've subscribed your entire life to. The issue when you come to tough passages is not leaving, making sure I am the right one and everyone else who believes anything else is wrong, and that being some sort of prideful, arrogant thing to stand on. The issue is always the worship and praise and adoration of a good God. And yes, we want to stand on truth. We certainly don't want to be in error. We don't want to stand on false gospels like Paul writes to other churches. But my friends, if the motive is being right, that is an issue of repentance. So, why is this passage so tough? Because of these three words. He chose, he predestined, and his will. Also, what's happened is when you start reading about God's choosing and you start reading about God's predestining, what has happened in the previous hundreds and hundreds of years is this has become one of the most divisive theological thoughts or views of God. And so what happens is your, your eyes are drawn to choose and your eyes are drawn to predestined and you begin to question, well, if, if God chose then what does that mean about all of these other things? And your heart and your mind begin to wander and go quickly. My guess is some of uh, your most heated debates scripturally has been on this issue. So I'm reading this passage. And trust me, I've been asked this question hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Mark, where does Matthias stand on this? And what I say every time is where we stand is we're going to teach the scripture. So first, before uh, I share with you what happened in my heart, can anyone make that say anything else? Does your Bible too read that? Does your Bible read that? I'm just asking. Like I can't, I can't change those words. Again, we can make it say what we want it to say. Right? And so all of a sudden I'm like dealing with that issue again. My heart starts welling up, listen, and I start asking the question, why did Paul write this? I guarantee you, he did not write this for it to be divisive. Think of who's writing it. Where was he at? He was on his way to kill Christians. And then what happens to the man? All of a sudden, a light shines down from heaven. The gospel disrupts his life. So do you understand who's writing this? A man who is fleeing from God, and all of a sudden God says, you are mine. He wasn't writing this, meaning it to be divisive. He wasn't writing this to build some sort of theological depth that people would stand on one side or the other. In fact, I want to propose to you, he wrote this so our eyes wouldn't be drawn to these three words. Instead, he wrote it so they would be drawn to these. Imagine if the church read these verses and instead of our eyes and our debates being drawn to he chose, instead, we were lured to in him. In Christ, that somehow union with the Lord was possible. You guys see, he, he wrote this so our eyes would be drawn to in love. And I'll guarantee you, there's been a whole lot of lack of love 
when it comes to teaching and preaching and understanding this passage. I'm just saying, when Paul talks about predestined and then he says, in love, I believe he meant our eyes and ultimately our hearts to be wrapped around that principle. God's done it in love. It's coming from a man who experienced the depth of the love of God in deep ways. And maybe, just maybe, he meant for our eyes to be drawn to the word adoption. So uh, I've been blessed, so blessed, by so many families in here who God has stirred to adopt children. One after another, it's been insanely encouraging. And there's been one consistency in all of the stories of adoption. The orphan never chooses the parent. The parent always takes the orphan and says, now you are a part of our family. You see? Paul's intention in writing this, certainly building some doctrine, yes. But his whole purpose, the whole desire, he explicitly shows us, explicitly shows us. Next slide. When he says this in verse 6, to the what? He says what we've termed to be some of the deepest, most difficult passages to interpret. And his instant response in the next run-on piece of his sentence is all of that is to the praise of who? His glorious grace. He doesn't start adding asterisks knowing that people would walk away and begin to argue, well, what about this, Paul, and what about that? What he is envisioning in his heart is that people will be thrust to their face because of the fact that the God of the universe has taken them who once were orphans and has made them a part of the family of God. Do you guys see? It's been so contentious when I believe the whole nature of it was that we would get wrapped in the love of God. He says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Every single person in this room whose grace has been poured over once was lost, once was orphaned, once was not a son and a daughter of the king, once was not an heir, but now, given the keys, brought into the family. In fact, listen to this. In the Roman ancient world, this issue of adoption was paramount. So much so that many of the ancient Jewish writers, including Josephus, talked about the reality of the premise of adoption in the understanding of the Roman world. Because once a Roman family adopted someone, listen to this. They were given all of the rights of the rest of the family. So the moment, the moment someone went from being an orphan to being adopted in the family in the Roman world, it was instantaneous. Now, every right that the family has, you sit at the same table. You eat the same food. You bear the same name. There is no difference now between you and us. It's us. And Paul says all of this is to the praise all of it. All of it. I'm just, I'm just sharing with you, my friends, that there have been a lot of tough passages in the scripture that many have argued over, and I'm just asking, what if we've missed it all along? What if we spent as much time praising and more time praising as we did debating? So let me encourage you with this. I just want to ask you these very, very blunt questions. Next slide. Let me say it this way. Are you willing, number one, are you willing to admit that God's ways are above your understanding? Are you willing to admit that? That's, that's what I'm asking. I'm sharing with you, when you start talking about God choosing and God predestining, if one person in this room says that they have all the answers on that issue, please, please step forward because in that moment, then you become God. Are you willing to admit that there are times where even pieces of the scripture are not just difficult, but a mystery. Yes, there are aspects of verse 4 and 5 that are a mystery, that remain a mystery. But one of those mysteries is not what we're to do with it. Are you willing? Next slide, number two. Are you willing to celebrate 
that God saves no matter how he's decided to do it. I'm just asking, are you willing to celebrate that? Who are we to say, well, God, you better save this way, and if you don't save that way, you're not God. When the God of the universe is saying, hey, listen, I'm going to go ahead and fling the doors open to my kingdom. What I'm saying is, what if verse 4 and 5 were meant so that the church in Ephesus, so that us sitting in this room would sit hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later and reading this letter in some 6280 church gathering or some home group gathering and all of a sudden be prompted that the God of the universe saves. He saves. He saves. He can decide how he wants to do it. And how he does it doesn't change if he's God or not. Are we, is this resonating in anyone? God, you save however you want. I'm just thankful that you save. I'm just thankful that I was orphaned and now I know I'm a son. And not just a son, I'm an heir. So God, you, you do whatever it is that you need to do to glorify yourself. I'm certainly not going to argue with you, Lord. Number three, are you willing? I'm asking, please be honest about this to repent of any built-up frustration or anger that you have on this issue. Are you willing? Because some of you have straight gotten angry. And I know some of you have been hurt over this issue. Me as well. Me as well. Okay? People have heard some things that I've, I've shared. Just, I mean, I could just read this passage. I wouldn't have to exhort it all. Just read it. And people would come up and say, well, I can't believe you said that. I just read the word. Like, what, what do you want me to do? Like, that's why we teach the scripture here. So that we're not all leaving saying, well, what, what do we think about this? We don't need to think. Here it is. Here it is. Are you willing to repent of the anger? Uh, here's my guess. Some of you have conversations that need to be had. There's people that, again, it's one thing to talk about the word and let iron sharpen iron. And that's healthy and good. It's happening all the time in a lot of families. We take a passage. Hey, what about this and what about that? And let's be stirred to a place of worship. That's good. But at the moment, all of a sudden, like the debate clash, like the anger and the unrighteous hatred starts to come out, I'm telling you, we're in a way different camp at that point. Uh, let me ask you this. <clears throat> is it possible that the church holistically has spent a lot of time fighting the wrong battles in the wrong war? Is it possible? You guys have heard my story. Like, I was the kid in committee meetings, 18-year-old youth pastor, wondering why we're talking about the wall color for three hours. I'm just like, why are we talking about this? Let's talk about things that matter in particular, how we're going to take the gospel to our city, our neighbors. Number four, are you willing to tell the world about a loving God? Let me make sure we're all in unison on this. However it is that God decides to save people, it doesn't impact how we tell people about him. God can do whatever God wants to do to glorify himself. Are we together there? Are we together there? He can do whatever he wants to do to glorify himself. But that doesn't change who I tell or how I tell people about God. You need him. You need him. You are so separated from him. But guess what? God's made a way. He's made a way. And no matter what your conviction is on some of these truths, oh my goodness, none of them ever, Paul intended, that all of a sudden it would cause evangelists to sit on their hands. So here's what I'm saying. As he pens this from a Roman jail cell, and he writes some very deep things that have spent a whole lot of time creating debates in the church, what if tonight we just celebrated? What if tonight our eyes drifted from some of the contentious words and were drawn instead to in him, in love and adoption? If that happened unbelievable things would happen in here tonight. And my friends, the truth of this run-on sentence is just beginning. Next slide, look at this. <laughs> in him, can you picture him? Can you picture him like riding from this jail cell, just going, just going, heart welling up. Maybe he's weeping on the floor and what God's doing. In him, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according 
to the riches of his grace. Now we're starting to get to some very, very, very deep, rich, beautiful stuff. Let's begin by defining redemption, just so we're all on the same page. It is to liberate by payment of a ransom. Redemption, it means to liberate by payment of a ransom. So let's begin with the payment. In the redemption, what's the payment? The payment is the precious blood of the Son of God. Uh, The payment couldn't have been anything else. There's a price that's been paid, and the price that was paid was the shed, perfect, spotless, sacrificial lamb that is the Son of God. The payment is his blood. There's been a lot of payment replacers. Come on, we've tried to pay a lot of different ways, haven't we? We've tried to offer up. We've tried to show God our works. Hey, listen, I know the blood of Jesus is great, God, but have you seen me serve? I mean, I am the best servant there is, God. Look at what I have to offer. Maybe, Maybe for me, the blood isn't necessary. God, look at all my participation in all the activities of the church. You see, God, are you, are you sure, Lord, that the blood is necessary for me? I can pay my own way. You know why this is so natural in your sin nature? Think about when others try to help you and what happens in you. Me and the kids uh, went around the city yesterday. We're launching a brand new initiative here in St. Charles where we're helping uh, families um, get off the floor, kids who are sleeping in the corners and sleeping bags on air mattresses. Uh, next Wednesday, we're taking all the fifth graders from Jefferson Intermediate and building 70 sets of bunk beds. And so me and the kids were just traveling around the city, walking around, talking to families, seeing what's going on. Came across the family, single mom, six kids in the home, two beds in the entire home. You know, and so we're sitting there in the brokenness of all of that. And listen, it would be very, very easy, very, very easy in all of our nature as someone's coming up and saying, hey, listen, um, we'd love to help you. You know what many of your nature is in that moment? I'm good. I'm good. I, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. It's another. You see, to receive the blood, it's the admission that you need it. To receive the love of a good God in the humility of our hearts, it's the crying out of God. I'm nothing without it. But our nature says, I can pay my own way. I don't need, I don't, maybe, maybe I don't need the blood. But the payment is only the blood. Let's make sure we're on the same page. There is no way to relationship with the Father apart from the blood of Christ. It was the only way. The payment is the blood. Those who are liberated, I'm sure Dennis would attest to this, when you're in your sin, your feet are shackled and the pain of the grip of sin holds your ankles tightly. When you're caught In the reality of your sin, your legs grow weary. Like your whole body is giving in. Your your lungs feel compressed, suffocated. Your shoulders feel pressed down. Your heart so hardened, so angry, so bitter. Your eyes scaled over, your mouth silenced. then when the liberation happens come on when the liberation happens when the blood of Christ redeems when you all of a sudden bathe in the love of God the shackles on the feet that tarry pop off 
And all of a sudden, you become a mobile, moving ambassador of the Lord. All of a sudden, the chest that felt compressed is now breathing in the life that comes from the Spirit. The hardness of the heart now softens, and you can weep in an instant at the reality of the Gospels. The eye that had the scales on them, all of a sudden, is seen clearly. The mouth that was silenced now is in boldness, sharing with the world the power of the love of God. Deliberation happens. And freedom is real. And it's only through the payment of what Christ has done. It's only in the ransom that was paid in Jesus. Well, there's only one other question, right? And that question is, what about the treasure? What is the treasure? If the blood is the payment, if we are the liberated, then what's the treasure? Do you guys see what I see here? The riches of what? The riches of his grace. We thought, we thought that somehow you could earn enough to be rich. We think you can achieve enough to have enough wealth. We believe that there's moments because of your resume that all of a sudden you stand and, and, and are there completely materialized and rich. But oh my goodness, my friends, how much rich is grace? Let's look at a few examples here, and I hope this is encouraging from Romans 5. But the free gift is not like the trespass. How rich is grace? For if many died through one man's trespass, Adam's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. How rich is grace? It's so rich that it's free. Oh, it costs something. But to me and you, there's nothing that we've done to earn it. There's no merits that can possibly be afforded God's grace. Grace, by definition, is getting what you don't deserve. And every single one of us, undeserving of the riches of his grace, and he offers it freely. Here, make your choice. Make your decision. You want to follow me or not? I'm the king of the universe. You want to serve me or submit to me, love me or not? How rich is grace? How about this? Check this out, my friends. I love this text from 2 Timothy 1. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering, says Paul to his young disciple, for the gospel by the power of God, who, look at this, saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose, and what, come on, and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He doesn't just save us. He calls us to a holy calling. How rich is grace? It's so rich that he doesn't just save you and say, hey, good luck with that. Because once we're son and daughters, once we're heirs, once we're a part of the family of God, then he says, okay, now you represent me. Now your calling is clear. Now you have a purpose you weren't even a people, the scripture says, but now all of a sudden you have purpose. How rich is grace? It gives a calling and a purpose to people who are purposeless and hopeless and sitting in all of their own devices. That's how rich it is. How about this though, next slide. Unbelievable text in Romans 6. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under what? How rich is grace? It takes the shackles off. It takes us out of the dominion and power of sin and now puts us under the rightful authority and power of the one true, mighty, holy, righteous God. We don't stand in submission anymore as sons of the devil, like 1 John says. We are now sons of the Most High. And for those suffering, how rich is grace? Check this out. First Peter chapter 5. And after you have suffered a little while, talking about our time here in the temporal, as a mist, as dust on this earth, the God of all grace, 
who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. How rich is grace? It's so rich that though you have cancer now, you have something to look forward to. So rich that though you lost your job now, you have something to look forward to. So rich that God could take my entire family away from me. My kids, my wife, I could be sitting on a curb, homeless, familyless, from the world's perspective, have lost it all, and in that precise moment, still in Christ, have it all. How rich is grace? It's an eternal, not temporal hope. When the scripture talks about the riches of his grace, I hope and pray that what's starting to happen in here is there is this realization that maybe you didn't think you were very rich, but maybe all of a sudden you're coming to the realization, maybe I'm way, way more rich than I thought I was. How about this though? Next slide. Look at verse 8. <laughs> According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now I have, I have in a very tumultuous way tried to understand this word lavish. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. I don't have pets. Many of you have pets. Okay? You get to the end of the meal. Okay? You're not so hungry anymore. You look at what's left on your plate. A couple french fries, a little bone from that steak couple pieces of corn, and a little biscuit. And you look at your, your pet, you know, and you're like, all right, here you go, pet. Here's some table scraps. Gnaw on the bone a little bit. I'm sure that biscuit will be a nice little trinket of love from me to you. Let me make sure everyone understands what lavish doesn't mean. It doesn't mean table scraps. It doesn't mean the last resort. It doesn't mean the afterthought. It doesn't mean a little bit because it's left over. The word in every aspect of the meaning of the Greek word lavish means he unloaded the faucet and began just to pour out the first fruits of his love, the first fruits of his mercy, the first fruits of his intentionality, the first fruits of his compassion and his mercy. He withheld nothing. Why? Because you're his kids. Lavished his grace. Flooded his kids with grace. Did not stop and does not stop pouring out. Because that's the thought of some. Oh, I come to Christ. Now he's forgotten me. Now he's abandoned me. No, no, no. You don't understand the principle of adoption. He doesn't take the orphan off the street and then send the orphan back. He always loves, always is gracious, always pours his mercy on his children in an unfailing way because it's not based on their ability to follow him. It's based on his ability to love them. So what remains for us right now is something that I've been waiting for, I feel like, for days. Next slide. I sat in my office a couple hours ago. Just weeping. As I was broken again, with the reality of what he has done. And I stared at this question on my computer screen. So what's my response? There's a lot of days I want to tell you what my response is. A lot of days my response is take it for granted. A lot of days my response is unmoved. 
A lot of days my response is still trying to offer up. Still trying to gain approval. Still making sure he and others see my good deeds. That's a lot of days what my response is. I'll tell you what I long for my response to be. In the response to his unrelenting, lavishing grace of which I bathe in. You know what I long for my response to be? It's a constant, non-stop state of on-my-face worship. Lord, I have nothing else. I am nothing else apart from you. Lord, please humble me again. God, please stir me again. God, you're so great. That's what I long for. The days to slow down, the worship in my heart, and the awe of who God is to rise up. Why? Because I was an orphan. I was left on the street by my sin for dead. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, a good pouring out the riches of his grace, God said, I know, I know who you were, but now you're something different. And I long for that to break me. And I long for that tonight to bring you and I to this place of praise. What is your response? Giving us an opportunity to remember the response. Giving us an opportunity to celebrate what he's done. Jesus on the night and the reality of his own death is becoming very very real imagine the scene he breaks the bread and he tells his disciples this is my body which is broken for you listen Words that would be echoed through all of time. This is my body which is broken for you. And then he takes the cup. And looking at those same men, most of which who would go on to be killed because of their belief in him, he said, This cup represents the blood of the new covenant. You drink this and you do this in remembrance of me. He has poured out the riches of his grace. And I'm not the only person who was orphaned, who is now resting in the riches of his grace. I've experienced the riches of his grace when he saved me from the life that I was living. I was on a path of destruction, following in the footsteps of my brothers, uh, one who's currently in prison and one who's not, and he chose to save me from that. I'm sorry, one who's currently in prison and one who just got out. I've also experienced the riches of his grace. When he allowed my wife to just... When he allowed my wife to discover my pornography addiction for the second time in our marriage, and instead of leaving me like she should have... She chose to reflect Christ and stay with me. She chose to love me through it. She chose to show me grace. She chose to forgive me, and she chose to work with me through it. I've experienced the riches of God's grace when he was with me while I was a a single parent to my daughter for the last 24 years. Many times I wanted to quit and give up, but he carried and sustained me. Also, I have experienced the riches of God's grace um, when he helped me in my singleness to find my security and my identity in him. 
He faithfully comforted me in my days of loneliness, and he surrounded me with amazing families who loved and supported me. I've uh, tasted the riches of God's grace when he rescued me from my crippling social anxiety disorder. And he um, produced in me not only the ability to speak, but gave me a passion and fervor to uh, live in a, in a peace that absolutely, in all senses of the word, um, surpasses all understanding. I've experienced the riches of God's grace when he saved me from a homosexual relationship. I was looking for love and joy in all the wrong places. Um, but he saved me. He made me brand new. And, um, and now I'm content. I'm content um, with Jesus Christ. If you knew this life, you know it's nothing but grace. Um, I see the riches of his grace. Uh, when he showed me without his grace, I'm nothing, nothing at all. Uh, been shot, ran over by a car, knocked off a barge in the, in the winter. Uh, been stabbed, spent five years in prison, a couple of close issues with coke, cocaine, uh, damaged the heart, and... Uh, through all that, he showed his love and pulled me out of the pits. And with his love, he's given me his grace. I've experienced the riches of his grace when he completely rescued me from a life of just downward spiraling of being consumed with alcohol and sex and sexual harm. Um, I'm sorry, self-harm. Um, and then he just, he pulled me out and he completely captivated me with his love. Church, these former orphans stand to serve everyone else in this room right now who once was shackled, who once stood apart and far from God, but who now celebrate that they've been called an heir because of the riches of his grace tonight. As he unleashes, we have an opportunity as the body of Christ to respond to the lavishing riches of his grace in worship. So believers, those former orphans come and share in this meal as we take time to celebrate God's saving work. Come when you're ready. <laughs> 